I want to invite you to share in the Word of God with me. We're going to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 27. We'll read 27 through 33, and then read 40 through 42. That's Acts, chapter 5, 27. That's where we're beginning. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew, and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Starting again at verse 40 in the same chapter, it says, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would let this word take root in somebody's heart and help them to grow by it, be saved by it, be enriched by it, be encouraged by it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the leaders had thought that they got rid of Jesus. They had had him crucified, but now there was a problem. There was an empty tomb. And uh, they pretty much admitted that it was empty because they had to concoct a story whereby they claimed that the disciples of Jesus came and took away the body by night, which is really just admitting that there's an empty tomb. But uh, his his disciples continued to preach him. There were followers that didn't quit because Jesus wasn't physically around anymore. And they were preaching him. They were preaching, as in Acts 4.12, that there's no salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved they were preaching Jesus. They were preaching through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. They were preaching through Jesus, repentance and forgiveness of sins. And they were preaching that we can have peace with God because of Jesus and eternal life because of Jesus. Now, these men that the Pharisees were confronted with, they suffered for him. And it's what our text says that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They suffered willingly. <clears throat> they were uncoerced in their sufferings for him. They actually willfully suffered for him. But more than willingly or willfully or uncoerced, they gladly suffered for him. In other words, they thought very well of him, to put it mildly. They regarded him as supreme over their oppressors and over their suffering. 
They put their lives on the line for him and for his teaching and for his words, and they did it gladly. And they considered suffering for him and honor and honor. They weren't as some other people may be just sacrificing for a philosophy, a political ideology or a religion, but they were suffering for a man, a man they say was dead, but is alive. And he is the way of life for anyone that believes in him. Now they all would continue to uh, preach him in this devotion um, they weren't donating a little time or a little bit of money. They were giving their lives a living sacrifice for what they saw and what they heard and for his truth and for his message. And this should give us pause. So many people that knew him personally were so transformed by him. After they met Jesus, their lives were never the same. When people meet Jesus, their lives are never the same when they really meet Jesus. Such should, devotion should give us pause. We should reflect on it. What did they see in him? They had lived with him. They had heard him. They had followed him. More than anyone, they would be the ones that could tell us what he was like, what he is like, what he's all about, how he is relevant to us. So we can see Jesus reflected in the eyes of the apostles. So when they met this man, they met a miracle worker. He had time for the commoner. He had time for the poor. He had time for the desperate, for the leper, for the child, for the outcast. He had mercy on the weak and on the sick even on the dead, on the bereaved, and on the guilty. And he healed them all. Time didn't matter. He was the master of it. He could never be too late. He taught a superlative morality that cuts through all human pretension, proclaiming love for God, love for fellow humans, love even for enemies. John, an eyewitness of him, said some of these words about him. I'm reading from First John, I mean from John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He said, that was that true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He said that when we looked at him, there was glory. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, John, recognizing his deity, was also stunned by his humanity. He wasn't just the mighty God. Of course, that would be not a jest. 
but he was a very good man, a man that would give you pause to think about him and about his nature, a man that anyone would do well to have as a friend. It would be an honor just to know him. In First John, he says it this way. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, we have seen it and bear witness and show you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. In other words, Jesus wasn't just imaginary. He wasn't a collective daydream that a bunch of uh, eager Jews had together to try to fulfill in their imaginations a messianic hope. But Jesus was real. He's not just a spirit or a vision, but he came in the flesh. And the reason that he shared what he had was because it was so wonderful to know Jesus. He wanted everybody else to know about Jesus. He says in verses 3 and 4, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. It's something so good you couldn't keep it to yourself. Someone so wonderful you had to tell other people about him. But someone so big and so available that there's no shortage of him. Someone that everybody needs. Somebody that you need. Somebody that I need. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through uh, 24. He said about Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. He pauses. I can't help but wonder how much I feel it when he's when he's saying this in the epistle, years after the fact, years after Jesus is gone physically from his life. He's still overwhelmed with this person, Jesus. He's still touched by him, still animated by him, still motivated by him, still teaching about him, though an old man still excited about him. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. <clears throat> he was, I would say he is, a man like no other, Jesus. He was without equal Jesus. He has no worthy contender, even. Jesus. He's in a class of his own. He has nobody else that is worthy to compare. No other has been like him, nor could be. He is what scripture in prophecy says, the desire of ages. He is the hope of humanity. He is the perfect man. Even his enemies had to admit a tomb was empty, like I said, and that he did miracles also, and that the common people were hearing him. Today, no serious scholar, no serious scholar denies that there is a, there was a literal historical figure named Jesus. But how are we going to know this Jesus? 
it's immature to write off the testimony of men that would gladly give their lives for what they saw and what they heard. These were eyewitnesses, and they gladly preached him. They didn't do it for money, because they weren't enriched by him. They didn't do it for fame. Paul describes the states of the people that were his preachers, the apostles. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto men and to angels, unto the world, and to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. The apostles didn't seem to get a whole lot out of preaching Jesus. It's amusing to me today to hear about men and women that tried to claim that they're apostles. I don't think they really want the life of an apostle. They think glory, fame, respect of men. Saying Corinthians discusses the sacrifice and the suffering of the apostles in verses chapter 4, verses 5, and then 8 through 11. Verse 5 says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. Instead of them being lords over some kingdom, they actually considered themselves servants of the people that they were preaching to. In verse 8 he says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always. This is beyond just the council that's in Acts chapter 5. The one that's in Acts chapter 4. Of Peter almost being put to death. Of later being put to death. But always. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. What did they have to gain? They wanted to share him with us because he came for us. They were willing to live and die for him even viewing their own deaths as a glorification of him, being beaten up and shamed as a great honor for their themselves to endure because of how worthy he is. They were glad to be living examples of him, to preach him, to know and to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. They didn't see or present him as just a good man, don't kid yourself. Or as just a, uh, just a kind person. That's not what they preached. That's not all they said. They didn't say he was a magician. And they didn't even say he was just a miracle worker or just a prophet. But they preached him, Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. He was God then robed in flesh, and they shared their own conviction to this question when Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? When confronted with this, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. So, Jesus is totally righteous. But he's not arrogant. He's approachable. He's even inviting. He's a breath of fresh air, but he's breath itself. He's not just an interesting historical figure then. He's not someone to study alongside Napoleon or Hitler or even good people like Lincoln. Because he really has no worthy comparison. There's never been anybody like Jesus. No one. No one like Jesus. Jude, who was his biological half-brother, didn't lay claim to that in his epistle, but he called him Lord. And Jude, in his epistle, wrote that the doctrines concerning him should be preserved because those doctrines and that person are perfect. Don't mess with perfection. It's already as good as it could ever be. It's already perfect. There's nothing lacking in him. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. About Jesus, he says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. I could imagine, maybe I shouldn't, what it would be like if any other human being had the powers of Almighty God. Was Almighty God among men? What kind of advantage would they take? What kind of an easy life would they live? But not Jesus. Instead of showing us his great creative powers at that time, he showed us his great character. Says he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Such a man as a man, deserves the honor of Almighty God as God. And it says in verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There's nobody that you could name that's even worthy to be held in the same sentence as him, the same book as him. Indeed, all of our names aren't worthy to be held in the same universe as his. But it says that he has the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul was telling us here that Jesus is God, that he humbled himself, that he died, that he loved you, that he loves you. That he is unchanged and unchangeable, unembittered by what he went through. He's alive. And he's exalted above everything else. 
For such a man rising from the dead is not an impossibility. Peter said it in Acts chapter 2. He said that it would not be possible that death could hold him. Such a man would just have to live. If there is a God, a just God, of course, such a man death could not hold. As Almighty God in human flesh, death could not hold. He had power to raise his own body up again. This man taught us we should give heed to the things that he that he said. Moses said, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you to the Jews. And he would be like Moses. He'd be a miracle worker. But this one particular prophet, this Jesus, we should heed when he says that, that except we repent, we would all perish. That he came to die for us because we were goners and we were dead. The cross tells us then about the love of God. The cross tells us about the desperate need that we were in. The cross tells us about grace. And so this man told us that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That except a man be born again of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This man told us that we should live for him above all else, loving him, loving him more than, than even family members, father or mother or child. This is not something a mere man would lay claim to. But it's also something because he's not just a mere man that it's a pleasure to do. It's a happy thing to do to live for Jesus. Nothing could compare with the pleasure that a child of God has when he's worshiping the Lord, when he's praising God, when he feels God in the midst. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And there's such joy when you experience the presence of God. I wonder in this time when people are separated from one another, are they practicing the presence of God? Please take time. Don't be embarrassed. Worship God in your home. Worship him while you're doing the dishes. Praise God. Sing to God when you're going about your daily business. And let the presence of God meet you right there. Yes, God can meet you where you're at right now. True believers are happy. Happy to carry his name. They're glad to bear the name of Jesus. A true believer doesn't say, well, I want to see what the religious figures tell me how to be baptized and whether I need to. They'll simply say, what What does Jesus say? When Jesus said, for instance, he that believeth and is baptized shall be, shall be saved and he that believeth not shall be damned. They'd go to what Jesus said. When he said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And understand what Jesus is talking about, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. That name, Jesus, the name above every name, the name whereby we must be saved, the only name. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this this name is applied to believers. They gladly take the name because it's a name that the whole family in heaven and earth is named by that name, Jesus. So that Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Of course, I'd gladly take his name. 
There's no one like him. I, I feel unworthy of his name. I'm glad to be baptized in his name. I'm glad to associate with his death, his burial, his resurrection through baptism. I'm glad to be identified with him. I'm glad that he would put his name on me. I'm unhappy when people blaspheme that worthy name, as James said, by the which ye are called. We are called. The children of God are called by that name. It means literally in James, the name has been invoked over the children of God. Oh, that man. And we're also then glad to have his spirit. We're not happy to have somebody just tell us that we have the spirit and hope that we have the spirit, but we want the real Holy Ghost like the Bible says, with the evidence like the Bible says, glad to ask Jesus for the gift of the Holy Ghost as he spoke about in Luke 11, knowing that he will give it to us. Glad to live for him. Glad to live with him. Glad to have him live in us. Glad to be in Christ. Glad to have Christ in us. Glad to share him. He is alive. We've met him too. You know, what's interesting is to see the perspective of the apostles when they're looking at us. Because as we can see the reflection of Jesus in their eyes, they're looking at their disciples and they're mirroring the words of Jesus to Thomas. Blessed is he that has not seen and yet has believed. They're amazed that there could be a people who haven't seen, as Peter said. They haven't seen him, yet they love him. Though not seeing him now, yet believing, rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. People that receive the, the gift of the Holy Ghost and the salvation of God with signs and wonders and miracles, Jesus still working among his people, doing things in the midst of people today in 2020. And until he comes again, he'll continue to do that. Angels themselves looking into these things when the Holy Ghost is sent down from heaven. What an amazing thing the gospel is and how powerful this man is that he is still filling all things. And so the children, to practice his presence, they're excited about knowing his word. But Pilate was confronted with Jesus too. <clears throat> Pilate was a renowned, cruel politician. If you read about him in history, this Jesus, this Jesus, something about this Jesus. It's intriguing to see Jesus reflected in the eyes and in the life of Pilate. Pilate's wife had had a dream and she suffered in the dream. She warned him, have nothing to do with that just man. I've suffered many things of him in this dream that I had. Pilate, this hardened career politician criminal, this cruel person, this bloodletter, Something was different about Jesus to this Pilate. Pilate allowed Jesus to defend himself, and yet Jesus would not defend himself. He allowed Jesus to give a defense whereby Jesus could escape from crucifixion, but Jesus wouldn't do it. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And 
Jesus said, you said it. Pilate, though he was a hardened man, knew Jesus was innocent. And he brought him forth before the people and he said, I find no fault in him. And then in Acts chapter 19, we see what Pilate had to do because the Jewish leaders had stirred the people up. They had moved uh, a vocal group of people to demand as if all were demanding it, the crucifixion of Jesus. He had to do something to satisfy them. They seemed implacable. In Acts 19, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth that you may know that I find in him no fault. Then came forth Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto him, unto them, Behold the man. Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Indeed, they did crucify him. They pierced his hands and his feet, just like the prophets had said they would do. And just like Isaiah said, he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. But like the prophets foretold, it was not possible that he should remain dead. Just like they said, he would not suffer corruption. He would rise again. He is alive and he is ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive you. He is alive. But the words of Pilate echo through time and eternity. And I hope these words will resonate in your soul. When he brought that bloodied, beaten, humiliated, Savior before those people. And he said, Behold the man. Behold the man is recorded by John, the beloved disciple that loved him so much. The one that leaned on Jesus when they ate. The one that stayed closer to Jesus the one that gave us a reflection of how we ought to see Jesus and how we can interact with Jesus, not just a theological figure, but a friend, a kinsman, a redeemer, a savior. And as Thomas said, my Lord and my God, this is why the apostles were so willing to suffer, so glad, so honored to suffer for him. Because it doesn't speak so much of them. You can put up a statue of Peter in a basilica. You can put up Paul over there and all of the various disciples, all the various saints if you want to. But if there are any saints at all, they would say, like Pilate said, behold the man. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, 
What a marvel that we can speak your name. Thank you, God, that we can speak it knowing who you are and that we don't speak it in vain. Thank you, God, that there's a people that does not take the name of the Lord in vain, but they bear it, they wear it, they use it, they're glad to have it. It's the joy of their lives because you are. Lord Jesus, I pray for the people hearing this today. I pray for anybody that will hear this message in the future. I pray around the world, God, as this message of Jesus is being preached in pulpits in some places, on the internet and other places where you're just being talked about or read about in other places, that somehow, God, you would raise up a people that could be that glorious bride. Somehow, God, without spot, without wrinkle, something that would somehow just even begin to reflect your glory. And I pray that every one, one of us would count it a great pleasure to know this man. I pray it all in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.